Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It is Saturday, the 13th day of April 2019. In this edition of Connecting Dots, we're going to be taking a deep dive. And the title of this episode is 100 Years of Brainwashing. Now, mutual funds are generally, well, pretty widely held, and many investors say that they understand how they work, but that's not true. I've been doing this business for well over 33 years, and I can tell you absolutely the overwhelming majority of mutual fund investors, including ETF shareholders, they're just woefully unprepared to make an informed decision. I mean, they just don't know it. And if you have a mutual fund or ETF, and you just got upset because I said you don't know what you're doing or how they work, don't get upset. It's just a fact of life. You know, people are simply unprepared to make what I call call an informed decision. And they pride themselves, however, on being do-it-yourselfers. Now, for those of you who are out there thinking about picking your very first mutual fund or ETF, it can be really intimidating. I get that. And as a result, most people delay for years, even decades, before they actually begin investing, or they just do a little bit and they just kind of fiddle fart around. Continually putting off the needs, what needs to be done, that's a huge mistake. And it's easy to put off when it's difficult. But when you do something and you make the wrong decision, like using a fake advisor, or using fake savings vehicles. It can be both financially and emotionally crushing. So in today's Connecting Dots podcast, we're going to expose the truth about mutual funds, ETFs, pension plans, 401ks, 457 plans, 403Bs, advisors, agents, bankers, brokers, dealers, and those horrible, horrible, horrible financial planners. We're going to talk about how they're pulling the wool over your eyes and how a large segment of the investing public simply doesn't know what's going on. Connecting Dots is a production of Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing. All rights reserved. Rebroadcast or distribution prohibited without expressed written authorization. Connecting Dots is for educational use only. Investment performance is not guaranteed. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This broadcast does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation or needs. Nothing should be construed as an individual recommendation. Always read and all applicable information carefully before making an investment decision. Investments are not bank guaranteed, not FDIC insured, and may lose value. Due to our extensive holdings and that of our clients, you should assume that we have a position in all companies discussed and thus a conflict of interest should be assumed. Now, when it comes to things like clothing and meals and hotels, trucks, cars, planes, whatever you buy, a can of beans, all products and services out there that you're used to, well, you're used to paying basically the more you pay, the higher the quality, right? I mean, that's general rule of thumb. But unfortunately, that rule of thumb doesn't apply to investments, not one bit at all. You see, these mutual funds and ETFs and these advisors, agents, bankers, brokers, all of them, they charge whatever they want and nobody really knows what the standard is. Now, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you know what's going on, but the problem is you don't know. And these managers like us here at Fixed Cost Investing, we've got to get paid. But the problem is, especially with mutual funds and ETFs, the costs of conducting business are something that most people just simply don't talk about. I mean, in the academic world, there's a little bit of talk about it, but a lot of academics are supported and funded by these fund companies, so they have an inherent conflict of interest. Same thing with advertising. Journalism is conflicted all the time by people that are running ads. They say there's a Chinese wall, but there's not. Now, some funds are more expensive 
expensive than others. And unfortunately, well, when clients are new to our firm, they generally have a bunch of mutual funds and generally they're really expensive. And I point this out because one of the things that high cost does not mean you're getting better performance. In fact, it's usually the opposite case. So the ratio of expenses can be as high as 2% in a mutual fund. Same thing with an ETF. You know, there are just a lot of costs that really you don't understand when it comes to mutual fund. Most people, oh, is it a loaded fund? Is it a no load fund? Is it an index fund? Is it actively managed? You hear these things, you've been brainwashed into thinking, oh, only buy a no load and oh, only buy an index. Well, I agree that you shouldn't pay a loaded mutual fund fee. But here's the thing, there's fees no matter what. Even the people that say there's no fees at all, they're basically lying to you. Now, typically, mutual funds that uh, are passively managed, the management fees are lower. And that's been a big thing that everybody talks about lately. And unfortunately, that just scratches the surface. Now, there's a thing called 12B1 fees. And these are used to reward basically intermediaries for promoting the fund. In other words, it's a commission. And it's based upon the amount of money you have with the mutual fund. Generally speaking, they're anywhere from a old 25 basis points to as high as 50 basis points. That's a quarter of a percent a year to as high as a half a percent. So let's say you have over example, a million dollars. You're paying anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000. Now, unfortunately, people, especially retirees, which unfortunately, on the average in a home, for the most part, retirees are a unique group of people especially a lot of the baby boomers we've come across lately, the people who were retired from the Korea, Vietnam, the World War II generation, they tended to pay a lot closer attention to costs and oftentimes did a lot better than these baby boomers who just simply, whatever, I like my guy, put a sucker in my mouth, pat me on the head, I just don't care. And even when they're exposed, for example, to fixed cost investing and how it's so much better, what a fiduciary is, they can't get over the idea that, um, you know, it just doesn't make sense to them. What they want is they want the broker to keep coming to their house and paying them attention. A lot of times it's because they're just lonely. And so they're just happy to continue to pay commissions to these guys instead of, you know, basically uh, calling out the dogs and getting these guys out of the house. But, you know, it is what it is. It's emotional based selling. So these 12B1 fees are unfortunately commissions that unwittingly clients are paying. And an advisor who is a true fiduciary, okay, an investor advisor, not a broker, they're not supposed to be being paid these things. If you have, for example, a mutual fund that has a 12B1 and you're paying your advisor, that's like a crime. I mean, that is so ethically wrong. Securities and Exchange Commission, the Financial Industry Regulatory Association, and a lot of attorneys would like to hear from you because they'll sue the pants off these guys, but it's really not unusual. Now, basically, we'll talk more about fees later, but, you know, the average cost, you know, you let's say you got the 13 basis points on $10,000, you know, you're talking 13 it starts to adding up. Here's the point thing. 12B1 fees are things that you just got to pay attention to and you got to read the perspectives. If you're going to do it yourself and you say, well, I handle all my own investments. Do you really? Do you really know what's going on? Now, another charge out there are redemption fees. Now, these things are used to discourage trading and moving monies around between mutual funds. Sometimes they'll lock a fund up for, oh, say 30 days to a year so you can't move things around. And then they also have percentages that, well, you can't move more than two or 3% of the brokerage account at any one time. So again, some of these redemption fees, even though they don't go back to the broker, they go back to the fund, they're designed to keep you locked up. Everybody always talks about the load. The load is the haircut up front, the commission that everybody talks about. And these things are known as A shares. 
B shares or C share, they typically can run as high as 5.75%. Now, back 30 years ago, you could actually have mutual funds that paid a 7.5% commission. And they used to have these things called contractual investment plans where 50% of what you put in the first year was a commission. Now, those things are gone, but you still have these insane A, B, and C shares. B shares, unfortunately, are sold by a lot of people where they say, oh, I get paid by the company. See, all of your money goes to work for you. But the management costs inside are so much higher that in the long term, you're paying really through the nose. And these B shares work a lot like annuities, especially these variable annuities with, with what's called a contingent deferred sales charge. So if you try to get out in the first four or five or six years, you might pay a bloody fortune. And the question is, is the surrender charge based upon your original investment or the value of the account? You got to be careful of these things. There's a lot of tricks to these things. And again, these back and loaded B shares, they should never have been approved by anyone in the first place. Now, they also have a thing called C share. And C shares are considered commission-based products, even though I can make a great argument, they're not. Here's the way it works. You buy a mutual fund and you pay 1% commission in the first year, okay? You have an investment advisor who's charging 1.5%. What's going to cost you more in the first year? The investment advisor. Now, the investment advisor is then going to use mutual funds that also have, let's say, a 1% management fee. What are you in? You're all in at 2.5%. But you bought a mutual fund, okay? Let's say it's, again, at 1.5%, or let's say it's 1% is what the management fee is. But they pay the broker 1%. Because they pay the broker 1% up front rather than on a quarterly basis, guess what? The guy has to, is, is called a commission. Now, in the fifth quarter, they start paying a quarter of a percent to the broker. It's a lot like these investment advice. So one of the things you got to be really careful, I got to tell you this, sometimes you get these people, they just get crazed. Oh, no, the only way to go is to use an investment advisor, never use a broker. Well, I agree with that because of what we do, okay? Most, most guys don't do that. You actually can be actually all in at less cost at that 1% on a C share than you would be, for example, using your investment advisor charging you 0.375 times four, which is one and a half plus the one. So you could be all in at two and a half percent versus one. I, listen, I don't know about you, but if somebody's giving me a haircut at two and a half percent, that's a hell of a lot more than one percent. But these guys that sell the C shares, they can't call those investment shares because they get paid up front. It's uh, the law. It's just the way it is. Now, there's a fellow by the name of uh, Roger Edlin, E-D-E-L-E-N. He's at the University of California, Davis. He's a, a professor. And he has some people who also work at the University of Virginia with him. And they've analyzed portfolios. And this thing is getting a little old, but it's really interesting because they look at mutual funds, a grand total of 1,758 mutual funds from 1995 to 2006. And he found that transaction costs. And this is something that I have reached forever about. But I can tell you again, my little favorite say, uh, phrase, on the average in a home, for the most part, 99% of the people I tell this to, they don't get it. If you don't get it, I wouldn't be surprised. This is just one of those things that unfortunately... Most people will not pay attention to. Now, if you're really with me in this, thing, here's what it is. Transaction costs, okay, the cost of trading securities within a mutual fund can be higher than the expense ratio. So when you get, for example, these small cap growth funds, you might, might wind up paying about 3.17% in transaction costs. These large cap funds, it's 0.84. So as a result, you pay your guy or gal, they're one and a half percent. And you really are paying that for nothing more than coffee, donuts, and a pat on the back. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit as we go along. And then 
you're paying 1% for the mutual fund, then you're paying the transaction costs. And if the transaction costs are 0.84, you're all in at 0.33. But if you're investing in like a small cap growth fund, your actual costs are 5.6%. Now in 2018, the average investor basically lost twice what the S&P 500 was down. The S&P 500 was down about 4%. The average investor lost around 8 A lot of people attribute that to emotional investing, knee-jerk reactions, pulling a market out at the wrong time, not buying low and selling high, but selling high and buying low. That's all true. But don't discount the fact that these expenses that people are paying, they're not cheap. Now, mutual funds are notoriously inefficient when it comes to taxes, okay? That's true. You buy a mutual fund, it holds a stock. Let's say you have a company where when you got in, they you, you bought at you know, the, your share price. But many years ago, they bought stock at like $20 and now it's at $100 a share. You can actually have a company where you go into the thing and you basically wind up taking the loss because you simply bought at the wrong time. And a study by um, Morningstar years ago showed that mutual funds, their tax inefficiency actually dragged down a portfolio by about another 1 to 1.1%. So there's a lot of costs that are involved in mutual funds and ETFs that people just don't pay a lot of attention to. And I really wish, and I hope you're still with me on this thing. Now, let me say this. For every 100 people that started listening to this, if you're still listening to it, you're probably in a group of less than 2%. But wait a minute, there's still more. There are still more fees. Again, Morningstar has done a lot of work on this stuff. They've really dug into these things. The, the fees just continue to pile in and you've got to really dig into all of the costs. Now, one of the things that we do here is we promote something called old school and new school. And that's just a really big thing to us that you have a complete thorough understanding of what we're doing. And this is the easiest way for us to explain it. But before we do that, let's go ahead and take about a 90 second break. I'm going to rewarm uh, my coffee, stretch my legs, and I'll be back right after this. You are listening to episode 29 of Connecting Dots. Let's take a 90 second break to stretch our legs and pour a fresh cup of coffee. This episode of Connecting Dots, 100 Years of Brainwashing, is sponsored by Fixed Cost Investing. Fixed Cost Financial is the home of Fixed Cost Investing, the true fiduciary-based registered investment advisor where you do not pay more or receive less. Visit FixedCostInvesting.com. That's FixedCostInvesting.com today. Do not delay. Do it today. Fixed Cost Investing. It's better. It's simple. And it works. Fixed Cost Investing is the only true fiduciary-based investment advisor approach you should ever consider. Remember, the website is FixedCostInvesting.com. Now, back to episode 29, 100 Years of Brainwashing. 
Okay. Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the thing? Now, the title of this episode is 100 Years of Brainwashing, and the reason why we've called it that is simply because of the fact that we just simply have far too many people out there who have abdicated responsibility when it comes to investing to bundled financial products, which is what mutual funds and ETFs are all about. They're just bundled financial products, and you're, you're basically abdicating to somebody else. Now, again, is that important? No. Oh, well, you know, it's not a big deal, Paul. I, you know, I've got a mutual fund. It's doing fine. I really don't care. Hey, I'm getting my 9, 10, 12%. What do I care? You ought to care if you could get about a 5% higher rate of return because you're not paying all those fees. Well, I've got enough money. I'm fine. I've heard people say those kinds. Of, oh, my guy does the same thing. No, your guy doesn't do the same thing. Here's the thing. There's a difference between being ignorant when you don't know something, but when you know it and you deny the facts, that's stupid. Don't be stupid. Now, what is stupid is not understanding, for example, what we call one school. Now, we're going to take the word old, O-L-D, old school. Old school for us is actually owning individual stocks. That's not old. That's something you should be doing. New school is using the technology that's available to put things together efficiently and effectively, and you don't need to use all these third parties. We can do it now efficiently and effectively. So we take the O, the N, and the E, combine them together. Instead of old school, new school, we have one school. Using individual stocks, not fund shares, gives you flexibility, choice, and you don't have with us that asset under management slow bleed commission. So you say, well, is that a big deal? Okay, well, let me save you $800,000 with a very simple example. Ready? Let's say you have $250,000 and you're going to basically put that money away for 20 years. But on top of that, you're working. You're putting away $1,000 a month and you earn 9% steady eddy for rate of return. Now, if you were to go out and pay, let's say, a 3.5% annual investment fee, you bought a variable annuity, which all of these insurance agents and conflicted brokers are selling all the time. You buy one of those things, you're paying 3.5% and they sold you on these ridiculous living benefits and death benefits and scared the pants off of you, right? They got to you. Oh... What happens, Bob, if the market drops and you take money out? Well, Bob, you need to have enough cash. And your dude wants to have all of your money invested to make the maximum rate of return. Nobody wants to have cash, even though they say, oh, you got to have three, four, six months, a year of, of savings. But they want to invest it because they want to make money on it. These guys are such a damn conflict of interest. It really burns me up. So you buy these variable annuities. What do you got? Well, you would have $1,160,000. You say, hey, that's pretty good. It's a million bucks. I like that, right? But what if you paid 1.5%? You got 2% less in costs, now you're at $1.6 million. And you said, now you're going to say, well, geez, Paul, that makes sense. I'll use the guy who's doing the 1.5% over the 3.5% variable annuity. That's a better deal. Well, wait a minute. What if, on the other hand, you did this? You paid a quarter of a percent. That's right. You just paid a quarter of a percent. You didn't pay one and a half. You didn't pay three. You paid a quarter. You'd have just shy of $2 million. $1.96 million. That's a total of $800,000 difference between these two examples. I don't know about you, but to me, me saving $800,000 is a good deal. But how we, let's take one more example. Let's save $1.4 million. We're going to do the very same thing, too, but we're going to increase that to $500,000. Same example, 20 years, $1,000 a month, 9%, quarter of a percent, one and a half, three and a half percent. The difference between the three at the end of that period of time is 1.8, it's actually close to 1.9, 2.66 versus $3.3 million. Now, what do you think? think? Which one of those do you think is a better deal? 
if you pick the higher dollar amount, you're right. I agree. We're on the same page, but I'm going to give you one more. You got $50,000. You're saying, geez, man, I, you know, listen, I'm a Henry. I'm a Henry. I have high income and, um, you know, I'm a high inner earner, H-E, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, your savings isn't there. You know, you're high earner, but you're not ready to retire yet. I mean, you're just, you don't have everything. I get that. You're spending money, you're enjoying life. You should. You should enjoy life. But let me show you what just a little bit of difference will make if you do it right, right up front. And here's the example. You got $50,000, but you're going to do this for 40 years. So you're 30 years of age. Right? You got yourself established. You're, do, you're working. You're doing okay. You, you built up 50 grand already. And you're going to do this for 40 years. You go, oh man, 40 years. Yeah, you're going to be 70. You're going to live to 100. Everybody's going to live. If you take care of yourself except for bad luck, you're going to do okay in life. I mean, recently they had a helicopter, had a, a major malfunction and it crashed on a roadway in uh, Tampa, Florida. And the propeller blade hit a truck and killed a passenger or the driver in the truck. I mean, talk about bad luck, right? Stuff happens. It just is what it is. But let's say that doesn't happen to you. And you live, you got, well, you live and you're now 70 years of age. And you say, well, I kind of want to maybe retire, start doing something different. $50,000, $1,000 a month, 9% return. Here's the difference between paying a quarter of a percent, one and a half percent versus three and a half percent. At three and a half percent, you're going to have $2.1 million. You might say, well, that's pretty good. Yeah. Power of compound interest growth 40 years. Well, that's, that's pretty good. That's more money than the guy that had $500,000. Yeah, you're right. But if you paid one and a half percent, you'd have $3.7 million. And now you're probably saying, well, man, that's, that's some incentive. I, that's, that's an incentive incentive to save money. I'll give you a real incentive to use an organization like ours because at a quarter of a percent, it's $5.4 million. That's an amazing amount of money. My question is, are you interested in that? Now, I want to talk a little bit about the history of mutual funds, and I think it's important that you understand it. I mean, because everybody seems to suffer from recency. Oh, if it didn't happen, you know, like, for example, uh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, he he, he fought a vampire. No, no, he didn't. Well, people have only been around for a couple thousand years. No, people have been around for a long, long time. Now, there is some uncertainty as to exactly when mutual funds began, but King William I of the Netherlands in 1822 actually is given credit for issuing some of the very first mutual funds and it involved a Dutch merchant and actually these investment trusts, which we now call them, uh, go back to 1774. Now, guys, 1774 is actually before we declared independence against uh, the British. That was 1776. And so people have been investing for a long time. And all it was was a, a way they wanted to get smaller investors with a minimal amount of capital that you could invest. This was a the theory behind it, diversification, etc. Okay? I can't pronounce. I'm going to try to pronounce. Uh, yeah, I might as well try it. The Kitwich Fund, the Endgret Mott Management Fund. I mean, that's, actually it means unity creates strength. So what happened is these things really started kicking off in Switzerland, 1849, followed by a bunch of different vehicles that kind of really developed in the 1880s. And a lot of uh, the English, the Scottish, and the Welsh history has kind of come over here, Adam Smith and all of that. The mutual fund price, uh, mutual funds were actually the result of the financial crisis that hit Europe in the 1770s. You see what happened, they had this thing called the British East Indian Company, and it really borrowed heavily. During the boom years, I mean, things were going great. Boy, we're going over the colonies. We're going to North America. And we're, oh, you know, wasn't, we weren't the United States. We were the colonies. Remember that? If you remember that, you're really old. But you might recall that from your history book. And then, of course, you had the unrest. We had the revolution, and you had all the expenses, and uh, the revenue from the colonies fell. So the East Indian Company needed a bailout. In 1772, they were in deep doo-doo. And the British Treasury was already, you know, in deep doo-doo. And so this is quite literally the original too big to fail.
So the banking debacle in 2008, everybody says, oh, yeah, it's too big to fail. It's, oh, it's never been like this before. Really? Uh, those guys and gals in the 1700s after our Revolutionary War, they were sucking wind, okay? So again, don't think in terms of recency. One of the things that I've always said this, my as old as the hills, you know, those who don't know their history are destined to repeat it. That's the reason why one of the things we do here at Fixed Cost Financial is we know our history and we use that to connect dots because I got news for you. People are people are people. They've always been people and they're going to continue to be people and they continue to make the same stupid mistakes. So at the same time, the French, uh, the Dutch rather, were facing their own challenges and um, well, they had the same problem. So they kind of like had this copycat thing and look, the parallels to the 2008 too big to fail financial crisis real estate, it's just so similar. It's not funny. Okay, so the very first mutual fund really starts coming over here. We kind of know what the history of that is. Um, actually, the very first one survived until 1824. Okay, and um, it's just pretty cool. In uh, Canada, they have their own mutual funds as well. I mean, they started spreading from the Netherlands again to England and France, like I mentioned, Scotland and, and Switzerland in the 1890s. So the idea of pooling resources and spreading risk using what was then known as a closed-end investment really started taking place, and it hit here around the 1890s. Yeah, the very first item was called the Boston Personal Property Trust, funded in or founded in 1893. Again, this was a closed-end fund. And it was the creation of the, uh, it's called the Alexander Fund in Philadelphia. Now, again, these are, it's, we're constantly modifying and morphing, but this is where modern mutual funds all came from. Think of Alexander Hamilton. Well, the Alexander Fund. And um, again, they, they had uh, er, er, twice a year on a semi-annual basis, they would allow investors to put money in and take money out. Now, that is a really important concept. They only allowed semi-annual issuing. And by doing that, you have stability in the portfolio. What you don't have with mutual funds and ETFs, and this is something I've been talking about for years. I'm not going to go into this rapid short-term trading that's going on that these brokers are doing to avoid paying taxes. I'm not going to get into that today. We're going to focus on a 100-year, again, brainwashing of everybody. Why you want to buy mutual funds? You don't. You don't. You really, really don't. But the thing is, when you have money coming, constantly going in and going out. If you're the manager, what have you got to do? Now, let's think about this. Let's do something that you probably have an easier time understanding. What's the difference between a hotel and an apartment complex? Anybody? Anybody? Here we go. Big difference is what? Okay, you, you said it. I'm sure you said it. I probably heard you say it. Big difference is with the hotel, people are coming and going. That's not permanent lodging. That's temporary lodging. With an apartment, it's permanent based upon the length of time of your rental agreement. Maybe it's a one year, two year, three year. I don't know what it is. You have lease agreements, but there's one more item. What if you buy a piece of property? What if you buy it? What does that mean? It means you're going to stick around for a long period of time. So what these guys realized, you know, these guys, you know, years ago when everybody was dumb, when everybody was stupid, because, you know, everything that's been invented has been invented in the last 10 years. And you know, and I know that's not true now. These guys understood the importance of sticky. You got to have sticky. It's got to stick around longer. The original cost of overcoming the deposit, you got to have sticky. So here's the way it works. The very first mutual fund was the Massachusetts Investors Trust. Same thing is still around, guys. It was created on March 21st, 1924. Now remember, the 1920s and 30s, we had some really rough times in the country. It's the first open-end, capitalized mutual fund, so you could put money in, take money out. It was a continuous issue, and the redemption of the shares were by the company. Now, holy cow, this is huge. 
I just told you that these funds, this idea of working together, a nation, a group of people, a neighborhood, a family, it's people working together. Okay? It's called synergy, power of people working together. Problems always occur when you have mismanagement of expectations. That's the reason why you want to put things into writing. Oh, that's the reason why they have prospectuses, Paul. Yep, that's why they have prospectuses. No kidding. <laughs> And when you don't follow the prospectus, you're violating the terms and conditions of the agreement. Oh, that's like a contract. Yep, you got you got it. A prospectus is basically a contract. Now, you see how all this stuff is all starting to fall together? It's really basic stuff. But then, instead of having limited deposits and withdrawals, what do they do? They said, now I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to continually offer this thing, kind of like a grocery store. You can come in and buy whenever you want, and then you can sell whenever you want. So what we now have is the concept of diversification, unity of management. We have, again, working together, that mutual concept. And instead of just having limited liquidity, hey, well, now we got liquidity all the time. But We now have closed-in and open-end mutual funds. Oh. So after just one year, the um, Massachusetts Investors Trust Fund, man, they uh, they went from $50,000 and they went public and it grew to $392,000. This is 1928. So it was pretty darn popular. Now then there was a company called State Street. You might have heard of them. They had their own fund. They started in 1924 as well, but they did something that's a little bit different. They created the first no load mutual fund. Oh, you think no loads were created in the 1970s and 80s and just became popular. You would be wrong. The very first no-load mutual fund by um, Richard Payne and Richard Seltstall, as well as Paul Calbot at a company called State Street back then. And uh, they were affiliated with Scudder, Stevens, and Clark. They actually load, offered the very first no-load mutual fund in 1928. Now, that's huge. Nobody ever talks about that. No, you talk about John Bogle of Vanguard, who recently died, the father of indexing. Really? Come on. One of the things that always amazes me when people look at people like Warren Buffett. Oh, he's so great. He's so, you know, he has a one cutthroat son of a gun. He is good politician. He knows where to put his money. And people sometimes get credit for things they really didn't do. Look at the, the uh, things between Thomas Edison and, and Tesla. Now, Tesla is not just a car. If you don't know who Tesla was, the inventor at the same time as Thomas Edison, it's an amazing rivalry and something you should look up. But here's the thing. By 1929, there were 19 open-end mutual funds. Pretty neat, huh? 19. At the same time, there were over 700 closed-end mutual funds. And then the stock market crash of 1929 came in. And any of these funds that were highly leveraged, they were highly leveraged. They got wiped out. No different than the 2008 fiasco we had when it came to real estate. No different than the late 90s fiasco we had when it came to the dot-com bubble. It was dynamic. And so it wiped out a lot of small open-end mutual funds because they, they didn't have the cash. They couldn't survive. So the government said, you know, we got to do something about it. Government said we got to do something about it. They created the Securities and Exchange Commission in 1933. That's what they did. And then he created the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934. Now what this did is put a lot of oh, safeguards and protections for investors. For example, these mutual fund companies, they now had to do something. They had to actually register with the SEC and provide disclosure forms in terms of the prospectus. Oh. Yeah, Roscoe, they had to actually provide a prospectus. And so as a result of that, you then has something called the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which I will tell you absolutely unequivocally beyond and exclusion of every reasonable doubt is where things really got ugly.
So the problem is with the Investment Advisor Act, we basically codified something that has happened, which is this mad rush to mutual funds. The only way to invest, even in Canada, little Canada north of us, 1932, they had their first Canadian fund it's called the Canadian Investment Fund. And then by 1951, that thing had grown to $51 million. Nowadays, you go 51 million. That's not a big deal. I mean, Jeff Bezos and others, I mean, these guys are worth a hundred billion, not million dollars. Yeah, but that was pretty revolutionary for back then. You got to understand that. Now, what happened in 2008, of course, the global markets were rocked. Financial crisis triggered by the overextension of, of credit and mortgages for a variety of different reasons. I could go on for hours and talk about that. We're not going to, but the housing market really collapsed a lot of a lot of uh, financial institutions, not just here, but also in Europe. It spread across the world. Canada generally is pretty much largely escaped that compared to other countries because they had a lot tighter mortgage regulations there and their mutual funds did pretty well. They had a little brief downturn, but they immediately came back. So that's an important thing to understand. And then even in the 1960s, when we had this horrific bull market. 1950s, you actually saw quite a few mutual funds open up. I mean, a lot of them, including aggressive funds. In fact, in 1960s, you had something called an aggressive growth fund and over 100 of these things established with billions of dollars going in. But then in the 1960s, ooh, boy, things got kind of rough. Uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember, we had some tough times. 19, oh gosh, 74, Nixon resigned and, uh, or was it 75? Doesn't make any difference. Let's see, he won in 72, resigned in 74. So I had to think about that for a minute. But guess what? Guess what? Bet you never heard of a fellow by the name of Faust and McGowan. Probably never heard of them, did you? Nope. You probably heard of Wells Fargo, but these guys actually created the very first index. It was Wells Fargo. It wasn't it, it wasn't Vanguard. It's a concept that John Bogle would wind up using to build the Vanguard group. And they became an amazing, powerful company and uh, known for low-cost um, mutual funds. Now, you should know this. He recently died. And one of the last things he wrote about, he was concerned about ETFs, especially bond-based ETFs. And he was concerned about the ability to raise capital in the event of a big sell-off. Not going to get into that, but that's something you should be very aware of. So in the 1970s, you saw the rise of no-load mutual funds as a really neat way of doing business. It took some time to get going. Then you had the 80s and 90s and you had the bull market. Okay, so you had Clinton in there, bull market, rah, rah, rah. People like Peter Lynch became famous. You had these top gunslingers, household names, and more money poured in to the market. And the tech bubble, 1997, 98, 99. And I used to tell people that if you took the 10 largest companies out of the Standard Poor's 500, it was actually a negative year in 1999. Now you might remember what was going on. We had the 2000 election. And then after that's 2001, 911 occurred. We had Clinton and we had a Bush. We had a pretty damn recession after uh, after the 2001. We had a, actually a recession that started in 99. And then we had the Great Recession of 2007 and 8 and people panic. Okay. The uh, shine of mutual funds, the shine of investing really came off. And during this period of the financial crisis, a lot of shady dealings at mutual fund companies and banks, insurance companies, mortgage, where everybody started seeing what was going on. You watched the movie, The big short. It tells you a lot of what's going on. So we've had different fund, uh, fund crises, one in 2003 that we had a global financial crisis then as well. But the fact is the industry continues to morph and grow. And in the United States, I mean, there's over 10,000 mutual funds. I remember when I started in the business, there was less than a thousand mutual funds. Now there's 10,000. And if you account for all the share classes and how they do these things, I don't even know how many there are. I mean, there's just, it's amazing. I got an A share, B share, C share, I share, X share, Z. Okay. How many different 
And that's what's causing problems with Fidelity, for example. People are suing them, class actions, and good for them, including uh, one of my favorite people is uh, in, in Massachusetts, the securities regulator, Garvin in, in Massachusetts. I love this guy. Never met him. I'd like to buy him a beer, pat him on the back, and shake his hand and say, dude, go for it. You know, you've got these all these different share classes, and a lot of people with mutual funds in their 401ks are getting screwed. Not going to go into that. That's another item we'll talk about at uh, at a later time. Oh. Okay, so the bottom line is there's trillions and trillions of dollars in these things. But here's the thing. You know, there are things called separate accounts, separately managed accounts. There's also exchange-traded funds, which people think is a panacea for everything odd. These exchange-traded funds have got a got history. They've got issues. and But the reality is mutual funds continue to remain a pretty healthy item. So with that, now let's get into what are some of the advantages of mutual funds and um, kind of, well, figure this out. But what I want to do is I want to take a quick coffee break. One minute intermission. You're listening to Connecting Dots. Connecting Dots is a production of Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing. The way we do it, it's better, it's simple, and it works. And now, let's return to this episode of Connecting Dots. Now, the reason why people buy mutual funds is professional portfolio management, okay? I can tell you on the average in home, for the most part, most of these people don't know they're behind from a hole in the ground. Streamlined and convenient administration, no doubt about it, but there's costs involved in it. Risk management through diversification, true. Absolutely true about that. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, but also remember here at Fixed Cost Investing, we tell you all the time, the only way you're going to make any real money is to make a big bet on a big idea, and you need to retain control over it. I say this all the time. Do what you like, do what you're good at, profitable at, and can control, okay? Innovative solutions that meet a wide range of investment objectives and evolving investor needs. Okay, well, all that means is that as your life changes, you can move to different types of investments from being very aggressive to very conservative, and you can do that in a lot of other ways besides using funds. Opportunities for foreign, besides just domestic investments that might otherwise not be available, that's true. The more you get to a very precise specialty, you know, like small international stocks or emerging market stocks or trying to find a company that makes money in Africa, for example, good luck with that. It takes a lot of effort. You're going to pay through the nose and cost. Liquidity allowing investors to easily respond to changes in their personal situation and pull money out. That is true, but it's also stupid. Okay? It is stupid. Oh. Why is it stupid? Because people have knee-jerk reactions and your investment should be long-term. You should have enough cash to take care of the liquidity needs you have. Don't always be dipping into long-term money for short-term needs. Okay, so here's the other thing. Small amounts of money. People can actually invest in small amounts of money. And that's one of the things that we did here at Fixed Cost Financials. I sat back years ago and said, why should somebody pay more just because they have more? And why should you get less just because you have less? And why is it everybody has these huge minimums when the little guy that needs to get started, who really needs to understand how to do this, can't? So we fixed it, thought about it, put our money into it, and we did it right. All there is to it, we did it right. And uh, for everybody else that says it couldn't be done, well... (laughs) 
You're wrong. We did it. Okay, so then you have choice of methods, different fee structures. Got news for you. That's a bunch of crapola. Nobody knows what the fee structure is anyways. When I talked about A shares, B shares, C shares, I, Z, and X, Y, Z, nobody knows the different share class. If you, listen, I've been doing this for 33 years. I can tell you absolutely unequivocally without any doubt or hesitation, nobody reads a prospectus. Nobody knows what the fees are. Nobody digs into the numbers. You don't know who's managing your money. You don't know what is, what's in there. You don't do it. Be honest with yourself. Again, if you're still with this, with again, probably one out of every 100 people that started with this thing are still with us, but you're getting one hell of an education. I've been talking now for about 48 minutes. I think it's been about 48 minutes. And we still have more to go on this deep dive on mutual funds. 100 years of brainwashing. So the question I have for you is this. How do, okay? How do people pick mutual funds? How do brokers pick mutual funds? Do you get any idea? How do agents, these insurance agents, pick mutual funds? And on top of that, how do investment advisors pick mutual funds? Want to know? Yeah, I do too. And I'm going to tell you right after this. I get it. Picking your very first mutual fund is like going on your first date. Man, it's scary as hell, you know? First time you go boom, boom with somebody, I mean, holy cow. And then you wonder, what was all the fuss about? Not a big deal. Here's the thing, guys. When you pick a mutual fund, most of you are going to pick it based upon the name. Oh, yeah. I read this in the paper. Oh, yeah. I heard it was a good deal. Oh, it was a top fund last year, chasing last year's returns. Brokers do the same damn thing. Brokers are not managing money. They're just simply putting together buyers and sellers. Same thing with dealers. They're just dealing from their own stock. Agents, they oftentimes pick whatever their insurance company company has a relationship with it. Again, most of these folks will sell you things they get the highest payout. Or if they don't get the highest payout, they get bonus points for all these trips in, oh, Japan, Hawaii, and Europe, all these exotic compliance trips. Advisors, most advisors are delegating everything they're doing to a third-party asset management platform. I'll talk about that in just a few moments. But for right now... Let's talk about 1987. I remember October 19th, 1987, like it was yesterday. The problem was the behavior of mutual fund investors and managers really prompted the crash. It was terrible. You had a lot of skittish shareholders who cashed in billions and billions of dollars in 1987 during October, and it exacerbated the, the crash. Now, there was a presidential uh, commission. It was headed by a fellow by the name of Brady. It was during the Reagan administration, and they investigated this. And guess who one of the big culprits are, and was rather, of 1987? Got any idea? Got any idea? I do. I can tell you exactly who it was. Fidelity Investments. They dumped hundreds of millions of dollars of stocks in 1987, October 19th. And what happened, it really caused the big initial decline of 100 points in the day and just kind of really started ramping things up. It capped a week of investor tension. Over the weekend, fund investors started getting freaking out. These institutional money managers started freaking out. And Fidelity at the time was the largest mutual fund company. But man, when they started selling, things started going south. And here's how they did it. Before the markets even opened on, on Monday, October 19th, 1987, most most Americans, they were sleeping, had their heads in their pillows. We were zonked out. But Fidelity, no, not those guys. Now, remember the numbers that I'm going to give you are not the numbers of today. Things have increased dramatically in value. But back then, they sold $90 million of stock on the London Stock Exchange. Okay, And when that happened, you do realize the earth rotates. So when it's morning time in England and Europe, it's still nighttime here, right? You realize that when you're going to bed potentially on the East Coast, Hawaii is still just, I mean, they're getting going. I mean, there's a big, big difference there. You gotta understand that. Basic fundamental things, the rotation of the earth. Oh, by the way, for those of you who think the earth is flat, it's not. And if you think the earth is flat, please. 
don't try to be a client here. I'm not going to deal with you. Okay. So in the first half hour of trading on October 19th, and this is what we call deep dive. We're getting into it. Fidelity sold another $500 million of stock on the New York Stock Exchange. And it was roughly 25% of the big board's value. Then you had these people who were snot-nosed Harvard, Cambridge, MIT graduates who were on vacation. Okay. They're on vacation, chilling out. They've written an algorithm. Oh, algorithm. Isn't that a word that you hear about today with artificial intelligence and robo-advisors? Yeah, it is. A lot of these people were well, asleep at the wheel and they had automatic trading set up. And so things started firing off. And before you knew what happened, the numbers started to be just, I mean, you had an imbalance. You had, it's called an imbalance of orders, more sells and buys. And by the end of the day, Fidelity by itself has sold more than $800 million in the United States, plus their $100 million in England. That's almost a, it's almost a billion dollars, which was huge back then. And conventional uh, logic has always been, well, you know, investors panicked. No, institutional investors panicked. In October 1987, fund uh, shareholders also then said, well, I guess we got to get the hell out of here. And so they pulled $7.5 billion from stock funds. Yeah, more than they had invested in any other single month. And it continued for 15 to 17 months. Oh, by the way, back then I had a gentleman tell me, hey, Paulie, come here in my office. I got to tell you something. This is really important. I sat down with him. We had a conversation. He said, you're not going to believe what's going on. It's time to put every dollar you can get of yours and anybody that you know in the market. Me being an investigator, I said, why is that, Jimmy? He said, because IBM is now selling at less than liquidation value, which means, dude, they go bankrupt. It's worth more than what it's currently selling. And I can tell you, I have a tremendous number of clients that loved me from years ago because we did really well during that time frame. But withdrawals continued, even though the stock market in 1987 had a positive return. Oh, it started to recover, but most people lost out on it. So open-end funds contribute to the knee-jerk reaction by investors and institutional money managers who are just terrified. If I don't get out, everybody's going to jump out. I'm not going to be having liquidity. You can see where those old-fashioned closed-end mutual funds, those only semi-annual deposit withdrawals from the 1700s might have made more sense than some of the open stuff we have today. But again, what do most people do? Oh, you're just buying an index. You do the Rip Van Winkle. You buy a single mutual fund and you really don't know what you're buying. You buy a name. You don't know what's inside. You don't know what the details are. Nobody reads a prospectus. I've been doing this again for 30 33 years. I can tell you nobody reads the prospectus. They just don't. Now, there's a thing called separately managed accounts or just separate accounts. And it's a concept that we've been noodling about and talking about here for years. And that's where you basically have a brokerage account of individual stocks and bonds. We don't do bonds, by the way. And individual stocks for a very specific investor. Mutual funds are managed or a pool, okay? They're bundled together. But you see with separate accounts, you can have more customization for the specific investor. But what if you took the customization out and you created basically investment silos, which is what we do, where instead of owning mutual fund shares, you actually own individual stock. It allows you to customize things by removing companies that you don't want to invest in. You know, a lot of people talk about socially responsible investing, but they don't know what they're talking about. They're just buying a name. How about if you really have a heartburn with a specific company, you can actually get rid of that company. Oh. So separately managed accounts, because we've removed the assets under management costs, they're less expensive than mutual funds, the way we do it. Not most separately managed accounts are, are far more expensive, far more expensive than mutual 
mutual funds, but not the way we do it. You know, mutual funds benefit from tremendous economies of scale. We do the same thing by having our trade window, fractional share ownership, where we can break it down into one one hundred thousandths of a share. And most mutual funds underperform the market. That's absolutely true because the problem is these guys and gals have issues involving liquidity and they have performance numbers they got to hit. They get a base salary and sometimes they simply take too much risk. The other thing is separate accounts can benefit from investment ideas that are less restrictive than a prospectus in a mutual fund. And that's true with us because we use, for example, we're very big into using sectors, not just big, broad indexes. In fact, one of the things, if you're not familiar with us, is our equal weighted individual stock investment silo index. I mean, I think it's just a great thing. Get a hold of us if you want more information. So the thing is, if you basically take the best concepts of a mutual fund and the best concepts of individual stock, old school, new school, you get one school. And the reality is you're going to also do better financially when it comes to taxes. Okay, mutual fund shareholders pay more tax than separately managed account shareholders. And on average, that's true. Okay. You know, actively managed uh, funds can really pay a lot of taxes. Okay. So, you know, mutual funds, gen- they, here's what here's what they say. Oh, we're less expensive. Not true anymore. Well, we have greater diversification. Not true anymore. In some cases, yes. Mutual funds allow you to take advantage of new investment opportunities without selling. True and false. Mutual fund flows, a continuous uh, new tax basis, ongoing tax management. I, I don't buy that. Okay. And then, but the largest accounts receive the most attention. That's true. It's always going to be that way, except for at fixed costs. Financial, home of fixed cost investing, where everybody is treated exactly the same. So the bottom line is there are many low cost, low turnover mutual funds out there and they compare very favorably to the traditional separately managed accounts, but not when you do it the way we do it. Not when you've eliminated the assets under management commission and you've basically eliminated commissions for trading and you do it on a on a low percentage basis. And we don't get any of that. That's just a negotiated contract that we put with Folio Institutional. And the idea that wealthy investors are, are the ones who should only benefit from this, no, that's not true. We should do it for every consistency, efficiency. Yeah. We can do the whole nine yards. So one of the things that sounds a little confusing is our term called investment silo. And I get that, but that's the easiest way to describe what it is that we do. Now, one of the problems with mutual funds, they got a lot of hidden costs. Same thing with the ETFs. Sometimes they co-mingle investors and you've got, again, we've talked about the 12B1 fees, but there's a lot of other hidden costs. I really probably shouldn't go into all the details on these things, but there are a lot, you know, pay to play. Hey, you know, we're going to subsidize your trip and, you know, we're going to charge you a little bit extra. It's there's so many things that these mutual funds will do. It's just not right. So when guarding questionable behavior, again, it's out there. They're competing for your business and they're trying to get these brokers to sell. And, and there's, again, been some very questionable behavior that some of these people have done things. And again, some of these mutual fund companies have created just a random bunch of portfolios. They really don't know what they're doing. Then you've got this. You've got one layer after another layer after another layer of loss. And oh my gosh, it just becomes incredibly expensive. So you're paying, for example, you your person, 1.5%, and you're buying a mutual fund. They're using mutual funds. No, they're really not using mutual funds. They're using TAMPs, third-party asset management platforms, which I'm going to talk about next. Those TAMPs then wind up using mutual funds. And let's just assign 1% to every level. One, once we're at three already, okay? We've got 1% for the advisor, 1% for the TAMP, 1% for the mutual fund. And then the mutual fund hires their, they have outside managers, okay? They're just a fund of funds, another 1%. Then you have the actual trade costs at another 1%. You're at five percent. Man, this stuff is getting expensive.
Now, third-party asset management platforms are all the rage. 54% of certified financial planners, a group of people that I have absolutely no use for. And I can t- uh, another day I'll tell you my opinion of CFPs, and I'll give it to you really quick. The problem with all these certified this, that, or whatever, especially CFPs, they implement financial product. A financial planner should be a fiduciary, should only create, only, I repeat, only create a plan. Don't call yourself a planner. You are a certified financial seller. There are CFSs, okay? They're certified financial salespeople. They're not planners. I don't care what anybody says. They distract you. Oh, shiny object. Yeah, look at that. By having, okay, here's a good example. Oh, there's a dog. Oh, be scared, be scared, run away, and we're going to take care of you with data aggregation, financial planning. We have all, oh, we're going to do all this planning for you when all financial planning is, all it is. It's a tool, not a service. You can do it yourself. A company by name of Sorelli, okay? They did a study. It's 54% of CFPs are using third-party or turnkey, I also call it turkey, asset management platform called TAMPS. These things have been around since the 1980s. Now, here's the problem. What do these TAMPS do? Well, companies like uh, EMC, AssetMark, Lockwood, Brinker, uh, Cap. Capital, you invest, uh, Morningstar, all of these things, they basically are taking stocks and mutual funds, putting them into portfolios. Now they're using ETFs. They, they give you the marketing material. They give you the portfolio. They, they do everything for you. I mean, the guy and gal you think is doing the buy and sell, they ain't doing jack. They're getting one. You're paying them one and a half percent every year for doing jack. What are they doing? Patting you in the head, sticking a donut in your, in your mouth, giving you coffee, telling you everything's going to be fine, doing that hug and mug emotional sales. Occasionally they're selling you these non-traded real estate investment trusts, these, these tied up oil and gas limited partnerships. They wind up doing things like variable annuities and these godforsaken equity index annuities. They have these conflicted relationships. They're nothing more than sub-advisors. And so the costs start getting more and more and more. You know, you sign this limited power of attorney and they can do whatever they want. All of a sudden, before you know it, man, you're just paying through the nose. So again, camps have really grown in value. I mean, in, in popularity. Some people say, well, you know, it's not a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal because the person you're using who's calling themselves an investment advisor, they're lying to you when they're delegating everything to somebody else. They're really not doing it. So let's wrap this up and uh, kind of go through a couple of things that we just talked about and put it into uh, perspective and then we'll get out. Okay. What do you say? Again, I started off and I said, if there was one out of every 100 people who started with this thing are still here, I'd be surprised. And if you are, congratulations. My compliments to you. You actually sat through, I think, one of the most thorough discussions. And if you didn't learn something, well, bad on me. I doubt that, though. Again, when you've got the kind of subject matter expertise that I have and experience, you learned something. What you learned is that there are fixed and there are variable ways of doing business. Okay? You can pay a fixed cost or you can pay a variable cost. When you use these people who are using commissions, where you buy more, sell more, have more in the management, or profit more and pay more. That's a flexible commission, not a fixed true fee. You have known and unknown fees. You have delegated or abdicated. You know, most people say, well, I'm delegating to my... No, you're abdicating. You don't know what's going on. I want you to know. And if you don't want to know, you got to use a fiduciary. Somebody's not going to screw you over. A lot of people say things that doesn't cost any more to manage big accounts and small accounts. And I'm sorry, let me back that up. Some people say it costs more to manage big accounts. And I'm telling you, no, it doesn't. I said that backwards. But here's the way it works. It doesn't cost any more to manage big accounts and small accounts. 
accounts. And that's why fees should be different. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Fixed cost investing, what we're doing, man, it has struck a nerve. Our insight, our forecasting, I mean, I think it's second to none. So what we've done, unbundled the process of investing. We've restored the deck share. For those of you who are paying assets under management, either through your mutual funds, your ETFs, your investment advisors, the TAMPs, the sub-advisors, all of those things, it's a slow bleed commission. And I showed it to you earlier when I gave you the examples, 250, a $500,000, a $50,000 example over 20 years or 40 years. I mean, look, advisors as they exist today, are they're dead in the water. If you ever seen a TV show, Walking Dead, that's what they are. They are the zombies. And here's the thing. You know what I notice when I talk to people? It's the same thing. They either get it or they don't get it. People who refuse to get it, okay, the ones that are stupid, they went from being ignorant and not knowing to knowing, but now they're just playing stupid. They, they deny, oh, my guy does the same thing. I'll BS your person does the same thing. No, they don't. No, they don't. Oh. They're charging you commission. You just don't want to admit it because you like Bob coming over and entertaining you. Hey, what? Get a new friend. We fixed it. This is the future. Customization, choice, what you wanted. The more money in your pocket, it makes sense, right? But we've got over 100 years of brainwashing into buying mutual funds and now buy ETFs. And now, oh, we're not charging you anything. You know what? When somebody doesn't charge you anything, you know what the product is? You. They're selling all your data. They are. There's no such thing as a free lunch. It's amazing to me how the media will slam, oh, these poor retirees that go to these breakfast lunches and dinner seminars, they're screwed over by these, these, these speakers. It's true. They're always going to sell you big fat commission products. Places like Sun City Center, the villages, all these different retirement communities. Man, they are suckers for these free meals. These retired boomers and, and early boomers. Okay, Margaret, let's get in the golf cart and go see what they're selling for this index annuity. Maybe we'll buy one. Uh. Yeah, really? These people are literally brain dead and they're everywhere. I'm sorry. If you're retired and you're upset about that, then you're saying, I'm brain dead. But if you go, yeah, you're right. Most of my neighbors are brain dead. Then welcome to the world of fixed costs investing where you don't pay more or receive less. But your neighbor, oh, they're going to go down to the free seminar oh, and they're going to drool over the steak and the wine. And, and then, oh, he's a nice looking man. Oh, he's a, she's a nice looking lady. We ought to have him come over to the house. But you're paying one, two, three, four percent or more, especially with variable annuities. That's insanity. That is insanity. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. If you have a comment or an idea, call 888-629-7864. That's 888-629-7864 and leave a message. We truly appreciate your ideas and comments. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast was produced by Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing. Fixed Cost Financial is a true fiduciary-based investment advisor where you will not pay more if you have more or receive less if you have less. The way we do it as a true fiduciary, it's better, it's simple, and it works. You can find Fixed Cost Financial online at FixedCostInvesting.com. That's FixedCostInvesting.com. FixedCostInvesting.com